Our introduction this morning is actually from another text. It's from Ezekiel 37 here, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. From the verse 5. Thus says the Lord of God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will attach tendons to you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This valley of dry bones is not just a valley of dry bones. This valley of dry bones is us, my friends. That is our spiritual condition before we encounter God and His grace. It's not just a vision of Ezekiel. No, that is the truth of who we are. But how shall we be made alive, my friends? How shall this this breath come and enter us that we see in verse 5? How shall this happen? What we see in our text before us in 1 Corinthians is through preaching. Through the proclamation of God's Word. And what does the world do when they cast it aside as though it's worthless and it's useless, they say. But to those who are being saved, we cling to it. We cherish it. It is truly the word of life, the breath of life that comes to us. So we see in our text this morning, if you want to, it's in your bulletins, you can turn to it in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul would say these valley of dry bones that he goes through as he's planting church after church and city and towns and hamlets and villages that he's going around to, these valleys of dry bones, what is he doing? He's preaching the Word. That is how they come to life. That is how God puts flesh on these bones and they come to life. So let's go to our text here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. Verses 18 through 24. For the Word of the cross, the Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and the Greek seeks wisdom, but what do we do? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we need You to pull us out of this valley of dry bones. We need You to bring us to life 
individually and as a body, God, as a corporate body, as we image Your Son here on this earth, as we gather together to be built into this temple of God, God, we need You to bring us to life. Could you draw us into your presence that we might encounter you, Father, that we might see the beauty of your Son, that we might see him high and lifted up in these very moments, God, that your Spirit would work in us and reveal to us the depths of our sin and the almighty glory of your grace that you hold out before us, God. Could you captivate our hearts to behold you and your kingdom? Amen. The main idea that we're going to be driving home is that as a body, we should accept nothing less than Christ crucified. We're going to be, we're in the process of adding elders, and so we're taking time. We're breaking from Matthew that we've been working through. We're having four different sermons and on, on elders and what do they look like? Well, we know that they're they're shepherds and, and we they preach Christ crucified. They have they lead the church and they're men of good godly character. They are above reproach. And so we see that as a church, as a body, as we are processing who these elders are, we must accept nothing less than Christ and Christ crucified. So as we go through the text, you read verses. 18 through 20. And we see the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world that cast aside this Christ crucified. Then we're going to be going verses 21 through 24 two times. The first time we're going to be seeing Christ crucified. Just focusing in on that. Then the second time we go through verses 21 through 24, we're going to be looking at the effects of preaching. What does preaching bring about? How has preaching, the Word of God going forth to to these valleys of dry bones, how has it caused more revolutions than any army has ever thought? That's where we're going here. So let's go back to the text again without shame and read verses 18 through 20. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? And we have here laid before us two, two different paths here. The way of the world and the path of, that God would have for us to walk along. And as you know, the way of the world and the wisdom of the world, things, they look enticing, don't they? But they don't always bring about the full effect that everything they promise, do they? It's, it's like a, a child or a two-year-old son, Alice, just earnestly desires whatever toy is not in his grasp. And he will do whatever it takes to get it. And once he has it, he just throws it aside. He doesn't care. But that's the wisdom of the world. It's held out before us. Oh, if only I get this. And then we get it. And then we go, oh, big deal. If only I had that. And it goes on and it goes on as though we're trying to gratify something that cannot be gratified in and of this world. And so it is with the wisdom of this world. It looks enticing. And men and women of every age have been caught up in it. After all, look at the wisdom of the world. 
Godly men and ungodly men, right? Have they not brought us cities that have been erected and, and built up? We have treatments and cures to cancer. And you can eat breakfast in London, fly home in time for supper here in Rochester, Minnesota. And it's truly amazing, but it's quite limited. In fact, it's quite flawed. Because go back to the garden. And what was it? It was the wisdom of the world that enticed them, was it not? It was not pleasing to God, but it was pleasing to their eyes. And they grasped the fruit, they denied God, and they ate of it. Thus, the wisdom of the world, sure, it it can cure cancer. But the wisdom of this world, through the eating of this fruit, that has ushered in disease and death. The wisdom of the world has brought us poverty as we live in opulent homes, but it has also, it has also brought us poverty as well. And it holds before us everything that we could imagine, the wisdom of this world. And in the worst of ways, it gives it to us. It holds out everything that we want. And we, we have this, this, this framework of the wisdom of the world that's built up before our eyes and it shrouds us. It, it blinds our eyes as sin always does that we do not see the glory of the cross that is right there before us. You see, the wisdom of the world has not opened men's eyes. No, no, no. But rather it has closed them as sin always does. And it's to those who are perishing, the the word of the cross, we see in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But why is it folly? Because they have placed themselves as the judge. They've removed God from His his authority and they've sewn together robes that place on themselves of sin and pride. They've taken God off the bench and they've put themselves up there and they are the ones who judge the work and the actions of God. And with these blinders of sin and pride, they can no longer see sin in their own hearts, nor the work of God that is held before them. And rather than humbling themselves and being saved and turning to God for forgiveness, pride rolls up in them when they hear the word, oh, you must repent, all pride rolls up within them. And the response is, oh, that's foolishness. I don't need to repent. Sin, what sin, they will say. But to us who are being saved, this message of the cross is like a balm to our souls that are aching. It's like a life raft that we are clinging to rather than drowning in our own strength. But... For those who do not trust, the wisdom of the world will go forth. You've seen it throughout all of the ages. You have Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and the three giants of philosophy. They call us to know thyself, don't they? Socrates, know thyself. They didn't even know themselves. They didn't see the old, their sin that was stirring within their hearts and poisoning their souls. Their souls. Know thyself. Come on, Socrates. You have no idea who you are. They're blind to it all. And then you have Stephen Hawking, this last century. Renowned atheist. 
And he didn't use philosophy as Socrates and Aristotle and Plato would, but rather he used physics and mathematics to try to show what the world was and who man was and how it all fit together. And he was an adamant, and he was a vocal atheist. When he asked about God in the afterlife, he would say, oh, it's, it's, it's just a fairy tale for those who are scared of the dark. But he died this past year. And this renowned atheist, Stephen Hawking, he is no longer an atheist, I will tell you that. Right now, his knee is bowed. His heart is still in rebellion against the king, but his knee is bowed before the king. And as the gates of hell are locked from the inside, he will continue in this rebellion forever, rather than repenting. But he will go on in his rebellion. And the wisdom of this world, that is their great test, is it not? If you're so wise, why are you dead? You haven't solved the great problem, have you? No. No, you're dead. You're dead in your sin. Socrates, Aristotle, Stephen Hawking, name whatever one you want. Dead in their sin. Do not be captivated by the way of the world, my friend. Do not be enticed by the way of the world. All these great giants, oh yes, they're dead. They're dead in their sin. That's why Paul, he goes on and he taunts them, doesn't he? Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. He has. So do not allow this word of the cross to seem as foolish to you. Do not be so wise in your own eyes that you cannot receive this word of the cross. Just pray. Pray that God would open your eyes. That you would see the glory of Christ coming forth in this glorious message. It seemed foolish. If it does, pray to God that He would open your hearts. And that you would have eyes to see the glory of this cross. And that your eyes would not be so fixated on yourself and your own strength, but that you would see your own weakness and your own sin, and you would cling to the cross rather than yourself. This plea from Hosea at the end of chapter 14 and Hosea, he's warning Jerusalem, or he's warning the northern kingdom and calling them to repent. He said, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know. For the ways of the Lord are right. For the upright walk in them, but transgressors, they stumble in them. So this is the folly of the world. They see the word of the cross and they throw it aside as foolishness. But that's who we want to reach, right? We don't come together and preach to the saints. No, we want people to get saved, right? So what do we do? Well, what should we preach? Let's go back to the text here. Verses 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom. Beautiful plan words there. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Here's the world blinded as we talked about. Blinded in their own sin as they walk along this own path. This path of, of life. Blinded by their sin. Blinded by their pride. It's, they want God. Basically what they want. They, they don't want to come to God on their own terms, but rather they want Him to come to them on their own terms. Thus, it is not through the cross. It's not through your way, but no, it'll be through mine, won't it? It is not through your own righteousness, though, my friend, that you will come to know God. It's not through your own wisdom, and it's not through your own merit that you will come to know God. But the Jews, what did they want? They wanted a sign, right? They wanted a sign. Yeah, we had the Exodus. We had a great sign. Jonah had a great sign. Well, you have no sign. Except for a man put in a grave for three days and then resurrected. Well, that's enough sign for you, isn't it? Unless you're playing by a different game. And your eyes are covered by sin and you can't see it even though it is before you. That's what the Jews wanted. They wanted it. They demanded a sign. And the Greeks, what's their drug of choice? What's wisdom? Philosophy. But what did God give them? Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Crucify. Paul says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. And as a church, we're again going through this process of adding elders. And there's numerous qualifications that they must have. And we're going to be talking about 1 Timothy 3, I think next week. And going through the qualifications of godly character. But one of the primary things is their ability and their willingness to again preach and teach Christ crucified, in Christ crucified. For there is no longer the name under heaven and earth, under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. Thus we go back to it time and time again. That is why it is a balm to our souls because it deals with the primary issue, does it not? It deals with the issue of sin. So thus, when we deviate from Christ crucified, what are we doing? We're going into the wisdom of the world. And following down that path that is so often enticing and so often held before us, there is the fruit. Take and eat, Adam and Eve. Take and eat for the wisdom of the world. And they did. But this Christ crucified, we were talking about this in the office, it's like an essential oil to everything that is to your soul, right? You have, you have some trouble in your marriage? Well, just go ahead and take some Christ crucified and, and diffuse it in your bedroom, you know. Don't let your mind wander. You know, you hate your pastors, right? What do you do? Take a little Christ crucified, rub it on your wrist, put it together a little bit behind the ears, sleep on it. There you go. Your children walk in rebellion against you, acting out the sin that's within them. But, remember... Where'd they get the sin? They inherited it from you. So don't, don't get too upset. What do you do? Take a little Christ crucified. Rub it on their hearts. Rub it in softly. Everything else that we teach is a derivative of this. And in fact, this message of Christ crucified has been the message throughout the whole Scripture. It's been the main thing that is proclaimed. Go to Genesis 3. They're in the garden, right? And they partake. Take and eat of the wisdom of the world, and they do, and they're cursed. But what is the serpent told? He's told, He, Christ, shall crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. 
What is that? Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Abraham in Genesis 22 brings his firstborn son of the promise, Isaac, and brings him up from Mount Moriah. He's going to slay his firstborn son. You read in Hebrews, he's going to slay him knowing him, knowing that God the Father will bring the firstborn son of the promise back from the dead. What is that? It's Christ crucified, is it not? Go in numbers when they're walking in rebellion against Moses and against God. God sends serpents to judge them. And Moses takes this bronze snake and holds it up before them. And anyone who looks to this serpent on the cross is healed. What is that? It's Christ crucified, is it not? For just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that anyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. You see how John is bending, molding together the old and the new upon what thing? What does it turn upon? Christ crucified. But it's not just, that's not just the old looking forward. Right. It's not just in the garden. It's not just Moses. The whole Levitical sacrificial system pointing to Christ crucified. Them wandering in the desert, looking to Christ crucified. Look at the prophet Isaiah. What does he say? What is he preaching? Surely, he says to those in Jerusalem, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What is Isaiah preaching? Christ crucified. Okay, well, okay, okay. So that's it looking forward. But what about Christ? What is Christ teaching? What is Christ preaching? Shall I repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? But who is this king and what, what shall he do? Matthew chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And what? And be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Maybe it was just a passing comment. Okay, we'll keep reading two more chapters. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus said to him, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Okay, twice. But what about, what about if you go another two chapters down through Matthew here? See, he says, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him and put him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. What is Christ preaching? Anything different than we saw in the garden? Anything different than we saw with the prophets? Anything different than the Levitical system or what they had out in the wilderness? No, Christ is preaching Christ crucified. And that Matthew 16, here is Peter. He knows what Christ is implying here, that this Messiah must be killed. And he goes, Lord, no, 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 not you. 
Never, Lord. They shall never, this shall not happen to you. And Christ rebukes us. Get behind me, see. This Peter, who is denied, who once denied Christ and then was restored back to fellowship. What does he preach, do you think? I think you know the answer. In Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, how is he known? Whom you crucified. Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. This this man they just hewn. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And what was his preaching centered around? Christ crucified. Go through these beautiful sermons on Acts. What do you see over and over and over again? Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Was their sin any different than ours? No. Did they need a different message from us? No. Are we, are we so sophisticated that we've gone beyond this message of Christ crucified? No. It was the same sin in the garden, same sin in the wilderness, same sin that Isaiah was encountering, same sin that was opposing Christ, and same sin that was opposing Peter as he's proclaiming the gospel in the temple. It's the same sin that's in me and the same sin that's within you. So what do we preach? Christ crucified. What about Paul before King Agrippa? He says, To this day, I've had the help that comes from God And so I stand here to testify both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Paul understands that it's all pointing to Christ. Nothing but the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, must be crucified, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to raise from the dead, he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. This word of the cross, it wasn't just to the Corinthians. No, it was everywhere. You go before kings, what do you preach? Economic justice? No. What do you preach? Christ crucified. You write a letter to the Corinthians, what do you write? Christ crucified. It's a word of the cross. They had a shorthand phrase for it. Word of the cross. Because it was so common. I hope you see that this Christ crucified is a central theme that's going throughout all of Scripture. And tying it all together. The church, throughout church history, when they have thrived, when they have delighted themselves in Christ crucified. That's why the suffering church, the persecuted church, does so well. Because they partake in the sufferings of Christ and they fixate upon this Christ crucified in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And they cling to it because that is their hope. And that is why it is such a blessing of Oftentimes to go through suffering. So as a church, we must continually keep our eyes upon Christ crucified. And as a body of Christ, we must be known as a body and as individuals, as moms, as employers, as employees, people who preach and teach Christ crucified. And all of our ministries in our outreach, in our community groups, our school of theology, our missions to Ecuador, we must continually cast our gaze upon the glory of the cross. And when the church is distracted from this message, 
It does it to its own peril, quite frankly. When our identity becomes more than the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, we have adopted an identity that has not been given to us by Christ. Sure, feed the homeless, but feed the homeless to proclaim Christ crucified. So the church's identity must never be feeding the homeless or protecting the environment or protecting the border, whatever it must be. And we actually do a great disservice to the lost to those outside of the church, do we not? When we give them a reason to view Christianity as anything but a place of Christ crucified. But when they look at the church now, but what do they see? A bunch of middle class people finding a soapbox to proclaim their socially conservative ideas. And they want nothing to do with that. And we wonder why no one's being regenerated. Sure, the gospel, it speaks into marriage and sexual identity and sexual relations and everything else. The gospel does speak into them. But if we are so silent and Christ crucified and so loud and articulate on these other topics, well, then we have fallen into the folly that Paul is condemning here in our text. As a church, we must settle for nothing less and we must accommodate nothing less and we must be known for nothing less than a place that proclaims Christ crucified. That we gather together as a body of believers, putting everything aside, gaze our eyes upon this timeless beauty and the glorious attraction of Christ. You don't need gimmicks. You don't need entertainment. You don't need anything else. When people gather together and behold the beauty of Christ, that is enough. It will be enough throughout eternity. And it must be enough now. Let us not be distracted, my friends. But in closing here, let's go through these verses again and notice the effects of preaching. For since, we'll just read them, there's not many verses. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach. What do we preach? Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And closing here, you see that there are two effects of preaching, condemnation and salvation. Condemnation to those who cannot believe, who refuse to believe, who do not want to believe. Preaching brings forth condemnation over them. As they walk in rebellion, their rebellion against the king is exposed. But it also brings salvation, does it not? See in verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So if you want to have an effective ministry, which is what we want as a church, is it not? If we want to be effective in reaching and saving the lost, The only way to do this is through the proclamation of the gospel. The clear, bold, unwavering proclamation of Christ and Christ crucified. And if they don't believe, you can't change their heart. There's no entertainment that's gonna, within the church, that's gonna bring them to believe. No, it is the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit will work through you proclaiming Christ crucified. As your children walk in rebellion, what do you do? Christ crucified. 
That's what saves them. Not teaching them and showing them how to be good moral people so that you're not embarrassed. No. Christ crucified. That's what they need. And Christ crucified is the only answer to our greatest problem, which is sin, my friends. And you know, you know, that you will stand before a holy and a just God. And the treasures that you're able to bring this, this king are nothing but your sin, and your filth, and your wretched heart. Do not continue to walk on this path of wisdom, my friend. Do not continue to walk in this path of worldly wisdom. But come. Come to God. Come empty-handed and broken-hearted. Come with your heart full of sin and full of pride. Come with your lost soul that you might be found. Come and cling to the cross and place your trust in Christ and Christ alone in His finished work. And that alone. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress, hopeless look to Thee for grace. Bow, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Christ crucified is your only hope. Your only hope is to believe and accept nothing less than Christ crucified. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that You would sear this truth in our eyes that we could see nothing less but than the glory of Your Son. And that we would cherish Your Son and His work upon the cross because, God, we know that we can do it not in and of ourselves, but, God, only through You sending Your Son to redeem Your people, God. I pray that we as a church and all of our souls here, God, that we would not be so hard, that I would not be so hard, so as to look to myself and my own wisdom and my own pride, God, I pray that you would shatter it. Let us cling, cling to the cross. Let us come helpless and broken, God, knowing that we have nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Amen.